Well, good morning, church. It is always a blessing for us to be together. My heart is full this morning as I think about Nathan and Masa, as I think about the Gasores who are with us, as I I think about the Morgans and all of our, our missionary partners throughout the world. It is amazing to hear the ways God is able to be present in every place with every every kind of people, with, with every language we could possibly imagine, that God is present saving and rescuing people. And to be able to hear firsthand from two, two people who are giving their lives to that is, to me, it's just a moment where I think about my own life, my own faith journey. And not only that, but I think about how we're all called, wherever we are, to try to reach people with the good news of Jesus. And, and that's at the heart of what we've been focusing on together for the last couple of weeks. As, as we think about the different kinds of people in our world, as, as we consider what it would look like for us to not only share the gospel, but to learn how to share the good news of the gospel in a way they're longing to hear. Right? We're, we're all different in, in a lot of different ways, but we're Also, at the same time, people who share basic needs, basic things that drive us, that we're searching for, that we're looking for, above all else. And the reality is, whatever name we give to those needs, the deepest need anybody has is a relationship with with God. Whatever else we call it, whatever else we're chasing, It's God that we need more than anything else. And yet we also, each one of us, we need to find a way to connect with people who may not be actively seeking a relationship with God because they're so consumed with whatever it is they're chasing after. And so for the past three weeks, we've looked at what we're going to end up looking at nine different motivations that, that we all in some ways share. But, but as I've said every week, one of these really belongs to you more than the others, talked about the need to be perfect, the need to be needed, and now today the need to be successful. And in order to kind of get in, into that mindset, I want to share with you some historical footage of a commercial from the 1990s. Nate, let's go ahead and play that now. To change the image of a rebel, change lenses. With the whole line of EOS lenses. Image is everything. EOS Rebel and lenses from Canon. So advanced, it's simple. Okay. Can you believe that used to be cool in the 1990s? Andre Agassi, right? Nobody was cooler than him, at least for a little while, and he was sure of it. And so Canon noticed it, and, and if you couldn't hear from that clear audio footage from the 1990s, the one line, and I'm guessing he only had one line because they couldn't get through a longer commercial if he had more, image is everything. Image is everything. Now, if you think about our culture, you think about one of the messages that, that we hear consistently just about everywhere we go, It's some version of image is everything. 
And in the 1990s, if you wanted to look like you were successful, apparently you got into a white Lamborghini or a Jeep, based on the moment in the, in the video, and you had a, a champion mullet haircut, and you had cool Ray-Ban glasses, and the list goes on and on, right? Because there's this sense that you want to be a success, but even if you aren't a success, at least you might be able to appear to be a success. Or, or another way to think about it is in our world, in our culture, a lot of people, if you make them choose, will choose style over substance, right? We, we understand that. Many of us, I think, struggle with, wrestle with this idea of how are we seen by other people and are they impressed when they look at us? Are, are they realizing just how many achievements we have? Do they see all the wins that we've racked up? Do they see all the degrees that we've been able to get, all the, the letters that are after our name? Do, do they see a success when they look at us. And that's because there are many people in our world, in our, our nation, in this room, who have this voice inside of them that is consistently reminding them or telling them, I'm only as good as my last success. Right? It's like that idea of what have you done for me lately? It doesn't even matter how many impressive things you've managed to do, how many wins you've racked up, how many things you've been able to accomplish. It's never quite enough because your, your life is still unfolding and people are still watching and they're still trying to figure out if you're the real deal or not. And, and there's a part of you that's afraid you're not the real deal. So, so maybe if you could just figure out how to always, everything you try, figure out how you're going to overcome, how you're going to be victorious, how people are going to look at you and see you as a winner, as somebody who succeeds at everything you try. There's only one really crucial problem with this. It can't be true. We can't always win. We can't always succeed. And so then there becomes this tension inside of you where we're back to this idea of style over substance where if you can't actually pull the win off, you'll tell yourself and anybody else that it might have looked like you made a mistake, but really this is how it wasn't a mistake. Or it might have looked like you suffered a loss, but this is, it wasn't a loss. It was actually a victory in disguise. There's this insecurity that can start to grow if we have to prove to everyone all the time that we're as good as our last success we start to feel like maybe if we have to pretend as long as they buy it it might work and and each week we've kind of looked at different places in scripture where people show that they have this same struggle and and this morning I want us to think about a scene that takes place in Genesis, chapter 27. We're going to read it in just a moment here. But the, the quick backstory is you've got two twin brothers, Esau and Jacob. They're growing up in a world where the older son, the oldest son, always gets the best inheritance. And so by the accident of their birth order, Esau is going to have a better future 
than Jacob, Jacob is ever going to have unless he figures out how he's going to turn this disadvantage into a moment he can take advantage of and, and he's going he's gonna to find a way, no matter what he has to do, to try to get that life, to get that future that, he, that he's afraid he can't get unless he pretends to be somebody that he's not. So what ends up happening is near the end of their, their father Isaac's life, he's getting ready to, to speak words of blessing. And he's going to give the, the key words of blessing to Esau because he's of the twins, he's the oldest one. So he sends Esau out for this special moment and he says, you know, go and, and hunt and, and kill my, my favorite uh, type of animal, prepare it in, in the best way that you know I like, and then when we have this meal together, I'm going to, to bless you, Esau. Well, Jacob finds out about this moment, and he sees this opening, and he and his mother kind of scheme together to figure out how he can work this to his advantage. And so she says to him, you know what? I know exactly what Isaac likes to eat. I know how to make it, and we can disguise you so that you can be the one who gets the blessing. You can be the one who wins when nobody expects you to be the one who wins. So let's read it together now. Genesis 27, starting in verse 15. Rebekah took her older son Esau's favorite clothes that were in the house with her, and she put them on her younger son Jacob. On his arms and smooth neck, she put the hide of young goats. And the delicious food and the bread she had made, she put into her son's hands. Jacob went to his father and said, My father... And he said, I'm here. And then he asks a strange question. Who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your oldest son. I've made what you asked me to. So sit up and eat some of the game so that you can bless me. Isaac said to his son, how could you find this so quickly, my son? How are you so successful? Right, that's the question. And Jacob said, the Lord your God led me right to it. Isaac said to Jacob, come here and let me touch you, my son. Are you my son Esau or not? Isaac can't see, and he feels like he's getting tricked, but he's not sure what's happening, so he asks again. Jacob approached his father Isaac, and Isaac touched him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the arms are Esau's arms. Isaac didn't recognize him because his arms were hairy like Esau's arms, so he blessed him. I don't want you to miss that. The reason Jacob is blessed in this moment is because he successfully pretends to be someone he's not. That's the reason for the blessing. Isaac said, are you really my son Esau? And Jacob said, I am. Now I realize it doesn't, it doesn't track at least at first, when you think about this phrase, I'm only as good as my last success, it doesn't go from one statement right to, well, I, if I have to pretend, if I have to, to kind of cause people to see me in a certain way, then maybe that's enough success. But I'm telling you what happens in our lives, brothers and sisters, is if we have to constantly always be better than we've been, if, if our performance always has to be more impressive than it's ever been before, at some time 
we are going to reach the place where we decide we'll fake it till we make it. And we might start out realizing we're faking it till we make it, but eventually what happens in Scripture, it warns us of this all the time, is, is you start out knowing you're pretending, but somewhere along the line, you're going to lose track of the fact that you're pretending. And you're going to start convincing yourself that you are the image you're projecting to other people. Think about what it did to Jacob's self-worth, that the way he won was by pretending to be someone he wasn't. He was pretending to be someone he could never actually be. Think about how that impacts the rest of his life. He tricked Isaac, but somewhere along the line, he starts tricking himself into thinking that it was okay for him to do that because he deserved that kind of life, because Isaac wasn't going to give him that, that kind of life anyway. And so if we get to the place in our hearts where we always have to be successful, we always have to achieve, we always have to win, we always have to, to, to get exactly what we set out to get, eventually we deceive other people and we deceive ourselves. And somewhere deep inside, it's driven by what I think had to drive Jacob, which is the true version of who I am won't get me the life I want. The true version of who I am won't get me the life I want. And I'm willing to do anything to get the life I want. And if that means I have to impress you over and over and over and over again, that's exactly what I'm going to do. Can you, can you sympathize? If this is not something you struggle with, can you sympathize with how exhausting this is? Constantly reading the room, constantly trying to read a situation, constantly trying to figure out what in this situation would make me a winner, what, what would make me look impressive, because you realize that everywhere you go, the rules change. Right? The image has to change. People's expectations are different, so you have to be different, and, and you want to, to impress them. So if you find yourself in a room where admitting your weaknesses would be the most important thing, well, you're going to admit more weaknesses than anybody else so you can win at it. If, if you're in a room where admitting weakness would be the last thing you'd want to do and you'd only want to talk about what you do well, well, then you're going to have more stories of what you do well than anybody else. And at some point, you've got to wrestle with, okay, who, who am I really? And why do I feel like I have to pretend to be somebody else to feel good about who I am? And the gospel comes to those of us who live with this kind of, of struggle in our hearts, this wrestling match in our hearts, and says, calm down. Stop trying to read every situation to figure out how you're going to win. You're not only as good as your last success. You are loved for simply who you are. You are loved for simply who you are. Now, I want you to keep in your mind the story we read in Genesis where you've got Isaac, he's, he's talking to, to Jacob and they keep kind of talking around this moment of blessing and it involves touching and blessing and all that kind of stuff because there's a direct connection with that and something that takes place in Jesus's life and ministry. And I want us to read that together now, starting in Mark chapter 10, verse 13. People were bringing children to Jesus so that he would, what? Same thing Isaac was going to do. 
right? But the disciples got frustrated with it and started scolding the children. My guess is, now this is a guess, that part of what's frustrating them is the children are interrupting Jesus' ministry and teaching, and they've given up everything to be close to Jesus, and these kids show up, and they get instant access. They haven't done anything. And they get taken right to the front row. And they're frustrated with it. When Jesus saw this, he grew angry and said to them, let the little children come to me. Don't stop them, right? Don't block, don't forbid them because God's kingdom belongs to people like these children. I assure you that whoever doesn't embrace God's kingdom like a child will what? Will never enter it. It does not say will never be able to enter it. It doesn't say, you know, won't be able to be accepted. It says that those who don't welcome, embrace God's kingdom like a child won't go in. This isn't about some sort of hurdle that you've got to get over to get into the kingdom. It's whether or not you want to live in a kingdom where all of your wins and all of your successes and all of your resources don't matter nearly as much as you do. Jesus freely reaches out and touches these children and blesses them because it's who he is. Not because of of what they've accomplished or what they're able to do or what they're able to promise. It's simply because he loves them. And there's nothing they can do to make God love them anymore or any, any less. God's love for them is constant. Now I want you to keep that in mind because the story keeps going. Starting up, uh, picking back up in verse 17. As Jesus continued down the road, a man ran up, knelt before him, and asked, Good teacher, what do I need to do to obtain eternal life? Or another way to say this question is, What do I need to achieve in order to gain ownership of eternal life? What do I need to do to get what I want? Because I can do it. Right, that's the implied statement here. And he calls Jesus good teacher. And Jesus' response to him is, why do you call me good? No one is good except the one true God. Now, this isn't, Jesus is not saying that there's no goodness in this man or in himself or in all of us. What he's trying to get this guy to understand is the goodness that's in him doesn't come from what he's able to do. The goodness that's in him comes from God and God alone. God creates us in goodness. God places his image inside of us. And when we're able to honor that image, when we reveal that image to one another, it's not our goodness that we're achieving. It's simply that we're sharing the goodness that God has placed inside of us. It's a gift. It's not an accomplishment. And he can tell with the way this guy falls on his knees and calls him good teacher that the guy is impressed with him. The guy has decided, you're the most popular leader around. You're the one who can, I'm going to show you all of, all the ways that I I want to signal to you that you've reached a position where people should kneel in front of you and ask your advice, right? And I'm guessing somewhere in this guy's heart, he'd like to be in that position someday where other people are going to run up and kneel in front of him and ask him what he thinks about things. What do I need to do? What do I need to accomplish? What do I need to achieve to get what you have? 
And Jesus starts from the beginning by saying, well, let me remind you that any goodness that's in you, that's in your life, that belongs to God. It's not something that you get to take credit for. Okay, let's continue. You know the commandments. Don't commit murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, don't cheat, honor your father and mother. And he says, teacher, that's child's play. I've been morally perfect since I was just a kid. Now, who does he think he's fooling here? Right? I, I, look at my track record. I, I can do whatever you ask me to do. I got it. And then I want you to, to notice this. Jesus looked at him carefully. The Greek here is gazed. He looked carefully at him in what? What? He loved him. Wasn't annoyed by him. Well, maybe a little. No. He looked at him carefully. He sifted his soul. And he loved him. And then he says to this guy who thinks that that a relationship with God and a relationship with everybody else in his life is predicated on him being successful and impressive and accomplished. He says to him, you're lacking one thing. Well, that's going to motivate him, right? You got one more win that you're missing. Go sell what you own and give the money to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come back and follow me. But the man was undone by this statement and went away saddened because he had many possessions. And Mark doesn't have to say it here, but those possessions gave him a sense that he mattered, that people were impressed with him, and he wasn't about to walk away from all of those advantages, all the ways that he could be seen as, he wasn't going to walk away from all of that, because if he did, who who was he really going to be when all of that was gone? What was, his self-worth was attached directly to his net worth. And it's because it made him be seen as a success. I mean, what do we call this guy? The rich, young ruler. He's three for three. In a world where it's better to be young than old, where it's better to be rich and poor, and where it's better to have power instead of not having any. He has all of it. And Jesus says that stuff is getting in the way of you understanding why I love you. I don't love you for any of that. And the only way you're really going to experience the truth of my love for you that's not attached to that is to get unattached to it, to give it away. It'll bless other people, but it'll bless you more. Because that's not who you are to me. That's not why you matter to me. To those of us who have this need to always be on top, to always win, to always accomplish, to always add to our resume, the gospel means that God loves who you really are more than the best possible version of yourself you always want other people to see. Because the best possible version of yourself is something that you've put together and you edit it and you only post the best pictures and tell the best stories and then you try to turn down the volume on the things where you make mistakes and you, you stumble and you fall. And for those of us, again, who wrestle with this, and it's many of us, 
I want you to think about a question. Can you imagine what it would feel like for you to be able to really trust that you are deeply loved even when you clearly fail? This guy fails when Jesus asks him to get rid of everything. He walks away. He's undone because he can't bring himself to do what Jesus is asking him to do because it's going to leave him standing there in front of of God with nothing but himself. And Jesus says, that's enough. You are enough. Without all the other stuff, you are who I love. Trust me. If the phrase clearly fail, when you think about your own life, really makes you uncomfortable, you're in good company. You are not alone. Most of us, most of the time, try to avoid anyone finding out that we ever clearly fail. And I think it's because we're afraid that nobody, including God, could love us in the midst of our failure. And I think we start to make the mistake that when we experience a failure, we are a failure. And that is never the truth about a a dearly loved child of God. You and I make mistakes. We aren't mistakes. You and I fail. We're We're not failures. You and I lose. We're not losers. Not unless we're talking about in the sense that, you know, in the kingdom of God, the last are first and the first are last, then I'll, you sign me up to be the biggest loser ever. Right? You are deeply loved, not in spite of your failures. You are deeply loved by God in the very moment you're failing. Isn't that what Paul says in Romans when he says at just the right time when we were still What? Sinners, Christ looked at you and loved you enough to die for you. And he does give us the victory. But in that same letter, the Apostle Paul says, we are more than conquerors through what we've been able to accomplish on our own. No. He says we are more than conquerors through what? Somebody in here knows it. Through him who what? Who loved us. Jesus looks at this man carefully and loves him. Not because of all of his accolades and because of his achievements and his possessions and all the signs that he has that he's He loves him in the midst of all of that, knowing that he's holding on to that stuff for dear life because it's the only thing that he thinks makes his life worth living. And Jesus says, there is a life beyond being a winner and, and be, being victorious in everything you try and trying to prove that you've never made a mistake. There's a life where you stand in front of God with nothing else but yourself. And you finally realize that God loves every single thing about you and would do anything to help you know it. I want to share some words of wisdom from people who I talked to this week who are driven by this this need to be successful because I I want you to know that if you're one of those people who have that, that struggle in your heart, that God works in the midst of that. Look, I want to say this real quickly because it's important for the rest of this series. These needs, 
there are different perspectives when it comes to how we see life and how we move through life. And as perspectives, they're fine. The danger is when those perspectives become your prison. When you become a slave to the need to be perfect or to be needed or to be a success, then everything falls out of balance and falls apart. But if that can be your perspective, we need people who are always trying to improve things because they notice imperfections. We need people who are constantly thinking about how they can help serve or or meet somebody else's need when they can't speak up to say it. We need people who look at goals that nobody else thinks are possible and they say, you know what? I'm gonna try it. Let's try this together. Let's do this amazing thing. Right? We need all of these different perspectives. What we need to be careful about is allowing those perspectives to imprison us. Because God is the answer to all of these longings, to all of these searches. But I want you to see how God works from these perspectives. Let's let's read from this first observation. In my need to appear successful, I allowed and still sometimes allow, what I thought other people expected of me to fulfill me, if I could just get recognition for the things I did, my cup was full, right? The other, the shadow truth there is, if this person couldn't, they were empty. I know I'm in a healthy place when I can feel love for who I am rather than what I do. Okay, and the person who shared those words is in this room right now. You know this person. And, and you might be somebody who could resonate with those words. And if you have this need to appear successful, if you focus on trying to, to feel like you're worthy through your, you know, being recognized for the things you do, what would it mean for God to work in your life where you really do feel loved more for who you are than what you accomplish? Let's go to the next observation. It's a different person. I often fall into the habit of impression management. Anybody do that in here? And feeling an almost compulsive pressure to do more, achieve more, be better at at whatever it is I'm doing. But when I take the time to slow down and be with God, he releases me. Do you hear that? From that prison. He releases me from all the anxiety and the negative feelings about myself. That without my wins, I'm not enough. Right? And let's read this last observation. Before, I was in a constant state of scorekeeping. Again, anybody in here fall into that at times? Self-awareness has allowed me to recognize that while the world and I might be keeping score, God isn't. He isn't concerned with the checklist or the resume. Nothing I accomplish in this life will have any impact on my worth. Nothing I do is going to impact my worth. Man, that's an important truth for us to hold on to. Because if we're not careful, this constant pressure to be successful eventually becomes a lie we tell ourselves that we actually, we don't need God's help to rescue us from it because we got it. We got it. The thing is, once you get to a place where you think you can do something, to fill this this ache inside of you, you won't do the one thing God's asking you to do, which is to trust that you're loved no matter what. In the wake of that man walking away, Jesus and his disciples have a conversation and they end up saying, look, if this guy who has all of these 
these resources and all of these advantages and all, he brings so much to the table, Jesus, and you just, you know, what's gonna happen? Who can be saved? If he's not good enough, who's good enough? If the successful guy, you know, what, what is this about? And Jesus says, well, before he says it, what does he do? Do you notice the repeated phrase? What does he do? He looks at all of his followers carefully. He gazes at all of them and sifts their souls. And then he says, look, it's impossible with human beings, but not with God. With God, all things are possible. You may or may not know this, but this story happens in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All three of them tell this story. But there's one detail that's different, and it only happens in Mark. Jesus looked at him carefully and loved him. And because that one little piece of observation is in there, church tradition has always suggested that Mark was the rich young ruler. Because who else would know how Jesus looked at him but him? And nobody can prove it, but I want to believe it's true. Because I want to believe that even though Mark came to Jesus with all of his resources and all of his advantages, all of the, the proof that he was a success, and Jesus says, get rid of all those signs of your success so you could just come to me yourself. Even though the first time Jesus asked him to believe it, he couldn't do it. That his story didn't end there. And that eventually, Mark found a way to believe that Jesus really did mean it. That that look of love that he experienced when Jesus locked eyes with him, it wasn't his imagination. It was the good news of the gospel. And he didn't need any of that other stuff anymore to make him feel like he was worthy of love. Jesus declared him to be worthy of love, and that was enough. And nothing else would ever be enough again. I want to believe the rich young ruler found a way to come back. And if it's true, and I want it to be true, you can believe this. Mark didn't write the gospel to write the best gospel. To have the best-selling version. Mark wrote it because Jesus looked at him carefully and loved him. If he wrote it, he wrote it from a place of that confidence. And not all the insecurity and the questions and the self-doubts that he would have carried until that moment that Jesus changed everything by saying to him, I know about all that other stuff, Mark. It doesn't matter to me. You matter to me. And you were loved for simply who you are. That's how we step into the kingdom of God. It's not that you're not good enough to get in. It's the only way in to trust in God's love for you more than your own abilities. You're loved for simply who you are. People in our world need to hear this, brothers and sisters. And if you get a chance to talk to somebody and you can tell they're driven by the need to constantly look like they're winning, like they're overcoming, like they never have any weak moments. This is the story you tell them. 
and you help them understand that Jesus didn't just come to save us from our sin, he came to save us from our false selves. And help us believe that our true self, that's who God wants. That's who God loves. We're gonna sing together now, and as we do, I pray that you think of people in your life who need to hear this message. I pray that you figure out in your own heart if this is a message that needs to find a home in your heart, that you find a way to let it in. That we stop chasing after some perfect, idealized version of ourselves that we think everybody else wants more than our true selves. And we just trust that if God could love us for who we really are, God's people could love us for who we really are. We need to hear that truth. Let's stand and sing together now.